0: Davi Pratape and his brother David took up baseball during their childhood in Florida. The brothers, whose parents were refugees from Laos, would go on to be the first known Lao Americans to compete at the NCAA Division I level. While Davi may have hung up his glove after graduating from Florida International University, he would merge his athletic experience with his academic pursuits and delve into the world of sports psychology. While pursuing a PhD in clinical psychology at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Davi is working with the Optimum Performance Program, an applied research and training program focused on the development, evaluation, and training of performance optimization programs for athletes. In this powerful episode, Davi will take us into the world of sports psychology and help Coach Andetka unpack some of the struggles that he faced as a professional bodybuilder. Hey, baby, how you doing? See, I'm hey, repping. I'm reppin the UNLV, man. <laughs> right, with you coming on,
1: like to see it. Like to see it. It's actually pronounced Davi.
0: Oh, Davi. All right, yeah. well, you Davi. got that right. Okay. Yeah. I and mean, uh, the last name is that um, tape like yeah, like boom tape like the city of Bangkok. You yeah. yeah. So you got it. <laughs> all right. See, I did learn something, Co. <laughs>
2: yeah. Davi is what is that? Your like nickname? that's my middle name my
1: real name is actually Derek but my middle name is Davi and my oh parents my always God. called me Davi growing up so I, I stick with it so I do
2: so your first I, name's Derek that's not a Laotian uh, no no
1: no no, no. Wow. And my bro- both my older brothers got um, Laotian names um, but the middle the, the middle older brother goes by David and then the oldest one goes by Boone um, but uh-huh. and then we all just go by the name we all go by names that we weren't initially assigned to you basically.
0: <laughs> so when they got to you, they're like, all right, we better go with an Americanized name. Yeah, that, ex- exactly. It's funny because my family's Italian. It's the same way. My older brother, he's Francesco Giuseppe Messina. <laughs> and then me, I'm my real name is Giovanni Robert Messina. So they kind of mixed it a little. And then my younger brother, they just went Joe, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like we're done with this. <laughs>
1: that, that's exactly what happened to me.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, cool. Well, thanks for coming on. We're really excited. Um, when you know when when we started communicating by email, and I and I saw what you were doing there at UNLV, I reached out to Co right away, and I said, "Hey, Co, um, Davi here is 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 studying the subject that's near and dear to your heart, and some but something we we kind of been almost looking for somebody with your background, who's <laughs> both an athlete and and studying athlete mental health and performance. It's so we're really excited to, to have you on the show. So co's going to go ahead and open up. Co, go ahead."
2: All right, hey guys, welcome to another episode of C4 Podcast, Southeast Asian Athletes Achievement Through Adversity. Um, If you haven't already, please give us a like, follow, and share, share our page. We're also affiliated with uh, Lao American Sports Hall of Fame, and we actually, John and I created that first to showcase the athletes' who are from Laos, Lao descendants? Uh, their achievements, and I don't know. I wanted to take. I, thought, I was talking to John, and I wanted to take one step further. I mean, the, the hearing their achievements are great, but what about hearing all the adversity they had gone through? So, and you know, and then we kind of opened up. You know, the region of Southeast uh, Asians, and we're we're finding that the stories are more amazing. You know, in my, in my opinion, stories are more amazing than the achievement itself. So I'm going to hand it over to my uh, co-host, John, and he will introduce our guest.
0: Yeah. So we're here with Davey Prate. And Davey, like I said earlier, we're excited to have you on because we've been delving into the stories behind a lot of really um, accomplished athletes. And there's a lot of commonalities. And, you know, we think of sports as being physical. But, but the mental side, right, It can is equally responsible for somebody's success, how to manage the stress, how to manage everything that comes at you, um, and just how to condition your brain, right, as much as your body to compete at these levels. So we're really excited to talk to you because you are both a former Division I athlete and now getting your PhD in clinical psychology focused on this very subject yeah. at my alma mater, UNLV. Um so, Davey, we like to kind of start being going to get your bio before we dive into athlete mental health here. So, tell us a little bit about your family, their, where they came from in Laos, and your early childhood in Florida.
1: Yeah, so, um, my parents are both from Laos, and my dad came from Vientiane, and then my mom came from Prabang. but my mom immigrated to, when she came to the state, she ended up in San Diego, or somewhere in California, and then my dad ended up on the East Coast. So he spent the majority of his first years in the States in um, Rhode Island. And I guess they met at some kind of reunion. And then my dad ended up actually getting his degree in engineering from URI and then got a job in Florida. And that's where me and my brother ended up, you know, getting born. So we're born and raised in St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, And we happened to live right by a baseball field. And so the only reason why me and him assumed that we played baseball was because our mom signed us up for something to do, you know, just to get us physically active and learn how to socialize in the United States. Um, Cause I, I imagine they knew how difficult it was for them um, trying to figure out how to navigate the social sphere here. So they wanted us to start at a really early age and being next to the ballpark. That was, that was the easiest access to that. Um, and so we just played baseball a lot growing up as kids and, you know, we, we were pretty good at it. We were pretty, you know, We had the kind of athleticism to get around, uh, you know, hanging with the kids that kind of grew up playing with it, have a history and families that played it. But um, once high school came along, we realized, like, you know, we were actually good enough to play in high school and play on varsity and succeed at that level. Um, And so both of us ended up, you know, playing varsity high school um, baseball from freshman all the way to senior year. So, you know, from our freshman year to the end, you know, we were playing at a pretty high level. And Florida being one of the most dominant, like, states in, you know, in baseball in general, um, we were up against some really impressive competition. Like, every year, you know, we would play against kids that are committing to, you know, Division One colleges or getting drafted right out of high school. So we knew the bar was pretty high the moment we stepped on the field in high school. So we kind of tried to held ourselves to that standard and play at that level as best as we could. Um, my brother ended up committing to a – like a, like a small non-NCAA college in Tennessee. And he was really excited to go, but our parents always told us like, you know, we care more about your academics than we do about your baseball. We'd rather see you go to a good school than go play baseball at somewhere where you're not gonna succeed academically. And so he was really bummed and he, our parents really forced him to like change his mind. And he ended up going to UCF, um, didn't get recruited to go to UCF to play baseball at all, ended up going to the walk-on tryouts and getting a, a spot on the team through that and we don't know about other and baseball players but me and him always assumed like that he was the first one to um, you know get an NCAA division one position as a Laotian, um person so he really inspired me and so when I was applying to schools for um, undergraduate I was like man I really want to play baseball but I really want to go to a good like um you know research one public university and my, I thought my best bet was gonna be FIU so that's a um public university in Miami that's also D1. And so I end up going to the tryouts there and walking on to myself. And so I don't think if it was for my brother um, having that representation that I would have thought it was possible. Um, but you know, our parents were, were really supportive of our baseball dreams too, um, but they were always more supportive of the academics over everything. So it was a really difficult balance of figuring out oh, do I want to be a brainiac or do I want to be a, a baller? Like I couldn't tell, we didn't know at the time. And that was always like an identity conflict we always had growing up because it's like they could care less if we played baseball in college. They could care less if we played baseball in high school. They really just want us to see us succeed in academics more than anything. Yeah, so as far as we know, uh, we've you know, done a lot of research on athletes
0: with the Lao American Sports Hall of Fame we have not found any other division one baseball players that, you know, have ancestry from Laos. So you're probably right. Your brother (laughs) may be the first one, but we, we have no way of knowing, but with what we're doing, we're starting to document this. Like we have a list of every known football player, um, for example, that we've, that we've created and we're missing some, no doubt, but yeah. So that's a big accomplishment for, for him as well. Um, And And yeah, university is sent. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Co.
2: I I was going to ask what position um, they played.
1: Oh yeah. We and, were both-
2: and, and did they, did the coaches pick for you or do you find you uh, was better at this position? That's what you got.
1: We were both actually um, catchers and wow, okay. I think, I think what we found out was like the way we were built. So we're both kind of short, stocky guys. Um, it's either we were going to play catcher or they're going to stick us in the hot corner at third base or second. And, you know, I know me personally, I, I kind of have a short attention span. And being a catcher, like, it forced me to be involved in every play. And also, um, you know, it forced me to interact with all my teammates more. So I got to get closer to them and bond with them more. And I found that was what I cared about more than anything. So catcher was really that position that I gravitated to. And I know for my brother, he gravitated it too. But also, he was, like, a really exceptional catcher. Like, he was really good at what he did. and was not no coincidence why um, he caught the coach's attention at UCF immediately. So... <laughs> Nice. Oh, yeah, that's exciting.
0: So, yeah, he was at University of Central Florida. You were at Florida International University, for those who don't know what those acronyms yeah. mean, both Division yeah. I public universities in the in the state of Florida. And like you said, it's it's one thing to be a college student at one of those big schools. It's one thing to be an athlete, but to be both and succeed uh, you know, still academically. What was that like
1: playing baseball in college and balancing all of that? You know, it was tough. And, you know, I, I made it clear to my coaches in the beginning I was like hey like I know my my ceiling I know I'm not gonna be the best player on the team but I'm gonna do my best to contribute but I know for one thing for sure is I'm gonna keep the team GPA up and they were pretty stoked on that so anytime I had like an academic responsibility they were always open to letting me do it but also earned that because I was really hard working on the field too I was very disciplined I made sure I was at every meeting on time every practice on time putting in my best effort um, you know and I think a lot of that comes from our parents who were really, really strict on us, really hard on us for being, being disciplined, because they're like, you know, if this is what you want to do, you're going up against a bunch of, you know, privileged white kids who've had, you know, histories and generations who know exactly how to make it playing baseball. So you're gonna have to work twice as hard. And if you're not willing to do that and suck it up when things get tough, then you're not going to make it out there. And so I kind of kept that in the back of my head. And, Every time I went into practice, I had a purpose, didn't take it for granted. And, you know, the coaches kind of fed off of that. But also they knew how much I cared about academics. And I think that gave them a little bit of relief, too, knowing that um, the whole team wasn't going to flunk out. (laughs) Yeah, it's a big part of it. My daughter, who's a she just graduated from high school
0: a couple of weeks ago. She's also a Division One athlete headed to the University of Pittsburgh to swim. And the it it was when we were going through the recruiting process, the, the GPA and the academics were a big part of it. For anybody out there looking to be an athlete, because the worst thing a coach could do is bring somebody on, invest in you for a year or two, and then you flunk out. Yeah. Right. And so they want to see that you're going to be able to hang um, and balance it because it's a big investment that they're making in you to do that. So, so she's going to have a lot of fun doing that starting here in the fall for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah, It's going to be some good competition for her, especially in the ACC. She'll have a lot of fun.
0: there's a lot of Olympians in the ACC. Yeah. It's really the top conference in swim, and that's, you know, um, she's excited about that yeah. um, for sure. It's gonna be interesting, absolutely. Um, well, so you, you really took academics seriously because you didn't just stop with a bachelor's degree like a lot of us do. You are now pursuing a um, degree in clinical psychology, correct? A PhD, actually, at my yeah. alma mater, UNLV. Um, tell us what made you decide to go into this and specifically why you decided to focus on, focus
1: on the sports side of psychology. Absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of went into play at that. And at first I didn't actualize or acknowledge that I wanted to do that until like second half of college. Um, but I realized, you know, going through high school, it was really, like you said, it was really tough to balance this identity as an athlete and as a, you know, a student as well. Um, And, you know, that really affected me moving out of the house. I was like, man, I could really use someone to talk to. I could really use someone to kind of help me through a lot of these challenging things. But I also realized, you know, it's such a niche um, experience for a lot of athletes. There's not a lot of people they can really turn to. And I realized being a catcher, you know, interacting with the pitchers and the players, it's like, you know, they're all going through similar things too, but they don't have like a professional to turn to. And so it wasn't until like the second half of my college experience where I was like, you know what? you know I kind of want to be the person that I wish I had growing up um you know I realized a lot of things um you know I wish I could have had as a college athlete and uh, just as a a person in general that would have helped me in the beginning and made that whole process a lot easier so um you know I committed to it once I realized that's what I wanted to do and that's how I kind of ended up here with that focus Um, because you know athletes, they go through such a, like a very niche culture. It's very unique. And not a lot of people can understand and appreciate the grind that they have to go through. And balancing life on top of that, you know, it makes sense why some people crumble or why some people um, just resort to really sh- like challenging coping strategies. It's not their fault. It's just what happens when you don't have the right guidance or help.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: So you're working at the UNLV Optimum Performance Center. Tell us a little bit about what you guys do there and the research that you do.
1: Yeah. So my supervisor, Dr. Brad Donahue, he was actually, um, a former golden glove boxer or something like that. And I think he realized at a, at a short, like back in the day when he was, when he was, um, boxing that, you know, there's an importance of sports psychology, not only just like for mental health, but also performance wise. And he really wanted to, um, take what he learned from, you know, being a boxer and being a clinical psychologist and kind of figure out uh, kind of a therapy or intervention specific for athletes um, to kind of see how, how it improved their sport performance, mental health and relationships, things like that. And so, you know, what we did, well, what they did before I got to UNLV was they implemented this intervention called T.O.P.S., so the Optimal Performance Program in sports. And basically what it is, it's a family behavioral therapy And basically you figure out what the athlete's goals are. um, You figure out who are the people most important to them in their life and you bring them into these meetings and you start discussing these goals and figure out different actionable ways to achieve these goals. And for when they achieve these goals, um, you kind of have these um, supportive others, you know, reinforce those goals and help them achieve those goals. And so everyone's kind of on the same page. And what they found out was for the college athletes, at least, um, that was way more effective at improving their mental health and their sport performance compared to just traditional therapy. Um, and we hypothesized because it was because of that sport-specific aspect that they were able to engage these athletes into it. Um, because athletes are typically a, a group that's hard to engage into the therapy, that's for sure. Um, but for me, I the past three years, I've been working with adolescent athletes. So we found that it was helpful with college athletes. And so I've been working with adolescent athletes. Um, because we wanted to see if the same approach would work with the younger, the younger kids.
0: Okay. Well, one last question on your bio. Um, when you graduate your PhD, what do you
1: hope to do? What are your career goals? That's a great question. You know, I go back and forth between a couple of things. Like I either hope to be a like director of counseling services for like an athletics department at a university, or, um, if I had the opportunity to as well, maybe just being a director of like, um, psychology or behavioral health with a major league baseball team but you know i'd be open to either or
0: <laughs> yeah wow well, that's exciting well yeah one of the reasons we of course wanted to have you on is co chandek here. my my co-host is a former elite athlete ifbb pro bodybuilder davi um i sent you we sent you a copy of his documentary
1: Oh yeah, I watched uh, that for sure. You no, know, he
0: he. Uh, so he's a big advocate for athlete mental health and wellness because he lived it, right? Uh, in one of the sports that's probably among the most intense. Yeah. So, yeah, so and go ahead. And go. I got
2: I got into like mental health um, by you know not by choice. You know, I didn't I, I didn't know what it was, or we didn't know what it was way back when. And you know, bodybuilding is is so out there. It's I chose it. Ironically, I chose it because I just wanted to depend on myself and and, and nothing else and no one else. And, you know, the lone wolf type of deal. In in reality, you know, and uh, and Davia, here you're talking about like the support system. I I wonder how that would have benefited my career support. I mean, I didn't even have support. Well, the worst was not having support from my own family. Yeah. You know, and just just them saying drilling, drilling it at me at five years old. You're too small. You're not good enough, and you're never. You're never going to be as big. You're never going to be as fast as. You're never going to be as strong, and you don't have what it takes. <laughs> so it's like yeah. <laughs> uh, it was. It was rough. I, I, I definitely would have loved to have seen some type of uh, support system growing up in high school or even college.
1: Yeah. No, I definitely agree to your points, there. And you know, a part of a part of it is too. It's like you know, you have your own visions, but your parents have their visions too. And they only understand so much of what this American sport culture is. And it's tough to, to teach them in, in the moment. It's always easier to explain it to them in hindsight. Um, and that's always been something that's always tough to balance as far, like as far as like having like your parents come here and expect you to go to school, become a professional and then make money that way. But then also you have to teach them what the value of like playing sports and, being involved in this passion you know it's tough to balance sometimes and sometimes they just don't understand
2: no no you're right you know and, and education is very it's very safe for you know people that have people coming over to the states and starting a new family I mean they want you know they I get it they don't want their kids uh to, to suffer you know so like getting education and it's very it's safe and you'll be all right and then like as far as me showing my parents what I wanted to do. Again, it's just they're looking at my dad's looking at Arnold Schwarzenegger at six foot five, you know, and 240 pounds. And I says, and then like he likes, you know, and he's like, Yeah, I, I know you want to be a bodybuilder, but that guy's six foot five, 240 pounds, and you're barely five feet tall at the time. You know, <laughs> so, you know, or or they're watching football and everybody's so big and they're watching, you know, pro wrestling and everybody's so big. It's like, how how are you gonna be able to, you know survive or much less succeed in this environment
1: one of of my favorite parts of your documentary was the um the one about the meals and the food because i like resonated with that so much like i come home from college and i'd be on like this workout plan and you know i wanted to make sure i stayed in shape but then you know your parents they make this amazing amazing food but it's just so high high volume, high calorie, and it's just like, you know, by the time you go back to campus, you usually be, like, a couple pounds more than you want to be.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was hard, man, and, and we, what, sticky rice is kind of like our main staple for everything because
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> a third-world country, you don't have much meat. It's not like everybody gets an, an eight-ounce eight piece of steak, yeah. right? It's probably one eight-ounce piece of steak for eight people, and you're, you're fighting over that, but rice was abundant.
1: Yeah, and then it's, like, the way you eat meals, it's like you eat it together and it's giant plates that you pick from instead of everyone having their own separate meals. So yeah, yeah. it's hard to even portion control yeah. for yourself in those moments. Oh,
2: but but definitely, it's a social thing too. Yeah. You know, on uh, Tilly Oceans, food is, it's, a, it's social. Drink is social. Music is social. You know, and it's just, but it's like, man, where, where are the athletes at? You know, especially coming up uh, in my time, like the 80s they weren't around and you were an oddball if you were an athlete now you have women that work out with weights we have a couple or a few uh women bodybuilders that are professional uh that are in the hall of fames like you know but when i started no i mean gosh they made fun of me and called me ugly and stuff you know (laughs) but now women are, are just they're competitive man you know they got you know, uh, I, mean, I don't know if you watched some of our other podcasts, Jennifer or Bong, you know, kickboxer. I mean, who would have thought? Yeah. You know, we're the breaking barriers here. And I, I love seeing that. And I think that's why, you know, again, as we're just trying to get everybody, you know, in, in, involved and then hear all your stories.
0: Yeah, Jennifer's story is incredible because she sports, I'm not going to say saved her life, but it really gave her direction in life. She was 185 pounds at five feet tall kind of lost with what to do in her life and went into a gym just to say, I'm going to get in shape. Ends up now in the ring fighting in front of people. Uh, It's just, it's really an incredible story of what sports can do, right. To give you a purpose and then just change the trajectory of, of your life altogether.
2: Well, Channing, Channing and all her, all the expectations from her parents, you're going to do this for, you know, for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, you, you don't even have a choice. This is what you're going to do. And you're going to take care of us. Yeah. yeah.
0: So Channing was a Paralympic athlete who was injured in Laos. Um, for those uh, listening, if you haven't watched, listened to the episode, it's a really good one. She was injured by a buffalo and, and left in a wheelchair, came yeah. to the U.S. and was kind of resigned to a boring life as as like a, in in finance and mortgage brokering and banking, um, but then decided to take charge of her life and got into Paralympic rowing and almost went to the Tokyo games. Wow. Um, so it's just an incredible story of, of, of really overcoming what sports can do. And, you know, Davey with that, um, you know, we always hear that there's the old joke, well, football's, you know, 50% physical and 60% mental, right. Yeah. You know, it doesn't add up to hundred mm-hmm. percent. That's the joke, but what, you know, what, what, what do you think really the difference is with the mental preparedness? Because there's people who are physically strong, right. But they just, they can't make it there. Um, there's something else, right. And in your opinion, what is that mental side that, that helps bring people over and how, how important is that having the right mentality to become an elite athlete? Yeah,
1: I think it's extremely important. Like you could have one bad day and if you don't have the good coping strategies to, you know, flush it real quick, that could affect you for the rest of the season. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of like units out there who are just absolute physical and like, athletes that can really get the job done but you know when it comes time to like locking it in or focusing under pressure that might where you might be able to see their faults and if they don't have that training or those skills to cope in those situations or have the foresight to know that those situations are going to come up um you know it's gonna be a lot tougher them for them to succeed as they progress in levels because the game gets harder and harder you know Mm -hmm. each each step ahead and every sport has their own kind of difference in as far as Um, you know the mental strategies you have to employ like for example you know I'm thinking about football you have to be locked in and focused for um, that moment in that play whereas baseball there's a lot of idle time so it's easy for you to get stuck in your head and harder for you to kind of flush those mistakes so it kind of varies from sport to sport but every sport is mental and physical in some capacity Um, you know I'm even thinking about um, like bodybuilding and working out you know if you if you don't have like a good mental routine, you know, your workouts are going to be harder. It's going to be harder for you to stay focused that day. It might be um, you might miss out on a rep because you kind of just are not in the mood to do it. And mm-hmm. if you don't have the skills to kind of either.
2: Or, or you could get hurt. Or you can get hurt. You know, exactly. you're, not, you're just goofing around and you're not pro- properly focused. You, you, that's when you tear something.
1: Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's a scary thing to go under a bar with 405 on it and not be locked in.
2: <laughs> there, there, well, okay, there, there's one example. I'm not going to mention the bodybuilder, but he's a pro bodybuilder, <laughs> and he was squatting 315, right? Yeah. And uh, a, a pretty girl walks by. What happened? What does he do? He turns his head. Oh, no. He messed up and didn't mess up, gave him neck problems or, or lower back problems. You know? Oh. So <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah
0: he's a friend of yours, right, Co? We won't mention his name. Uh, well,
2: I, I know of a guy. I, I, I know, know him. of him. Okay. I would
1: say he's a friend. I'm just, but... I'm just kidding. Well, that sounds like a story that could happen across across the world. So no one's gonna know who it is. Yeah, I don't know.
0: yeah, and you know, with that, I mean, so my daughter, for example, is a swimmer. Whoever touches the wall first wins. It's pretty objective. There's none of the you know. So Co, you're in a sport though where. I, I don't I don't know bodybuilding, but I look and everybody's huge, and I couldn't tell you who's the winner, right? So it's a little more subjective, right? And I know that yeah, they're judging, but that's got to take a toll on you mentally, too. Like, you put everything into it, you get up there, you think you won, and then, like, you didn't, all right? You got second or third. Well,
2: th- that was hard in itself. The sport itself is very difficult. But again, coming from Laotian culture, and again, the first thing you hear is, you're not good enough. And you hear that every day every day and I'm like <laughs> uh, you know the ocean moms man i was like they're 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 stubborn too you know you push they're gonna push back you're not gonna make it they did very much to try to discourage me and again it's what they thought fast yeah. you know but it turned me into uh it got me more focused Right. But I got so focused that nothing else mattered in my life. And there were times when it was just eating, breathing and training and getting ready for the show. And then show's over. And you don't you don't know what's happened in the last six months. I was talking about what getting so focused that, you know, I didn't have a, a social life. I, and again, no support system. But because my parents drilled in me, I couldn't do it. I really believed, you know, I, I got into my own world that I am the only one. I can only count on me. And it is my, you know, gosh, how, how can I say it? Uh, it's, it's almost, it's almost like I got, I got what I asked for because at the end I, I was alone and, I, and I, I coped in a way that I wish, you know, I wish people wouldn't cope, but that's what I knew. And, uh, it just led me to a very dark place and but it it got me into mental health and understanding myself of like you know how I was you know, why I was the way I was when I was a kid and all that and all those experiences you know and your and your youth uh, affects you so i'm I'm big and you know i'm big I'm big on mental health not just for athletes but just in general like you got to be able to talk to somebody and you holding it in is the worst thing you can do yeah so
0: yeah. And Daniel Coe, you retired from the sport and you brought this up before and told me about it. It's one thing to compete, then when you retire, you lose part of yourself, right? I like to tell us a little bit about your experience retiring, Coe, and then we'll have Davey maybe chime in um, from a mental health perspective.
2: Yeah, definitely. When you retire, everybody loves you when you're winning and you're a champion and you got millions of friends and the phone rings. The day you retire, everything stops. Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite, that's quite shocking. Uh, it's just what just happened. You, you had this uh, a belief that you did have some type of support system, fans or, or friends, especially friends. I, I had so many uh, fake friends uh, that I realized when things were bad and I was hurting, nobody was there. And then I make a quick comeback, and they're my friends again. It's just back and forth until you realize. And then I just accept the fact that, you know, this person isn't a a positive influence in my life. You know, so being older, too. I mean, I I retired because I was, like, 47, 48. You know, so I was kind of like, even if I wanted to compete, just, there, there's not much, you know, that my, my body's going to be able to do, you know, like right now I'm staying lean. I'm just eating healthy. Everything is for a, a healthy lifestyle mm-hmm. and, and to be fit, but I'm nowhere near, you know, the, the, the whatever, 180, 90, 190 pounds that I was when I was competitive.
0: Yeah. So I don't know, Davey, any thoughts from a psychology standpoint of athletes or advice to people who are going to be retiring? Um, and I know it's not your specific area of study, but what are your thoughts?
1: Well, even if it's like not my specific area of study, it's still something I had to think about after I was done, you know, you realize a lot of the friends you've had like growing up in sports was kind of more like proximity friends and you didn't actually build like maybe some deep, meaningful connections after the time Mm -hmm. was said and done. And in hindsight, sometimes you wish you did because it would have made it easier to shift out. Um, but for me, I know it was challenging because I grew up um, in the time when social media was booming. So you're constantly flooded in your feed with all these people your age or similar in age, like killing it or being successful and going on after you're done killing it, killing it where you're at and being successful somewhere else. And you kind of have to take a step back and figure out what path you want to pivot. Where do you want to kind of direct your purpose after you're done playing? And, you know, fortunately for me, like I said, like I had, the so the kind of like the academic part of me still having my back, but for a lot of people they don't, and they're kind of lost after they're done playing. Um, but the beautiful thing about about sports too is like once you're done playing, that doesn't mean you ca- you have to stop being involved. And for a lot of people I notice staying involved in the community, helping other kids in sports or coaching them, you know, at the level below, um, has kept them at bay and kept them their identity kind of stable. With all that being said, but. It really helps, you know, as far as future athletes go, is like making sure that, you know, they take a holistic approach to life and not make being an athlete their only sole identity. Because it is one way to be happy, but it's not the only way to be happy. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah, and and that, that was definitely my thing. I, I made it so much, like it defined me. Bodybuilding defined me. If I won, then I'm successful. You know, like even like I'm a good person. You know, if I lost... I was a loser, piece of shit. You know, I'm. Just, yeah. I, I, I would call myself a piece of shit. You know, just like and get back, go in the gym and train, and call myself you piece of shit. And I was like, it just wasn't the right. Again, it, it, I didn't know anything about it way back when. You know, and then it just wasn't around. Like even therapy at the time was kind of like, eh. You know, it was iffy. Now it's it's available.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah sports in itself and just like beyond like just Laos and athletes sports in itself as a culture has becoming a bit more progressive as far as like seeking mental health goes like 10 years ago, I don't even think um, we'd be having this conversation right now. Cause it would still be so yeah. stigmatized.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I don't well, think people realize that it, it makes the difference, right? It's like, it's like train harder, train harder, but there's another side. You got to keep your mind right. Right. Yeah. Or you, or you won't succeed.
2: Absolutely. Well, I mean, you guys see my documentary. I talked about the uh, addiction to painkillers. And I was with a big company at that time. And had there been, like, resources for me? Like, like, like now you got resources. You can go go get help. They'll give you some time off. You know, they'll, they'll send you, they'll send you to, you know, to a center, right? Or at least have someone to talk to. I had nobody talk. Here I was, like, I'm just trying to, every day was faking it. Every day was, like, thinking, man... You know, it was like that own paranoia, you know, are they're they going to notice something wrong with me or, uh, you know, am I going to be, how do I look today? And I, I really did. I, was like, I, I wanted to keep, uh, I wanted to keep that job or that sponsorship, but it, there is a risk. If you tell them, you might get, to, you know, I, either way I, I felt I, I probably would have lost. Like if I had told them, they probably would have let me go. So I'm mean, I just I just kind of like, well, let's just hide it for as long as I can, and eventually they
1: let me go. <laughs> uh, yeah, substance use and PEDs, like that, that that's a prevalent thing in all sports. And I, I just think it's because of like this need for instant gratification or instant mm-hmm. results because those like they exist for a reason because they do in a way enhance your performance in that moment in time, but the long-term effects of them Um, They really tear you down. They tear down your relationships. And at the end of the day, it's like you lose a lot of yourself because of those different substances and things like that. Um, But it's not an uncommon thing to hear about your teammates or someone else, you know, kind of using these substances and then also seeing them get bigger, get stronger, then perform really well. And it becomes this this subculture where it's like, oh, maybe I should kind of experiment with it myself if they're having all the success and then no one's finding out. Um, But at the end of the day, like, the risks definitely um are there.
2: Oh yeah. Well, I mean there's there's more information on it than way back when too. And again, like not even let's say they're not doing uh PEDs, but let's say they like going out and, and drinking, you know, like or, or just regular r- recreational stuff. Yeah. You know, you one he just won a big game and everybody's yeah. in there at the party and, and you're the man, you know, everybody's like everybody's like staring at you, like. You know, you kind of go with the flow and whatever is whatever is there, you get it for free. That's one of the problems too. Yeah. <laughs> you get it for free, You're like. You know, so it's a. Uh, how how many athletes would you say are using that don't get caught versus the ones that do get caught? What percentage would you say?
1: I couldn't tell you. I wouldn't know, but I know. I know there's been like I know like getting caught is always on everyone's mind. Cause we like, especially in the NCAA, because they all get tested so frequently, but a lot of them do things where they kind of cheat the test and they don't get caught. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. So I couldn't tell you.
2: (laughs) Well, it's like there, there's a joke in bodybuilding. 95% of the guys do drugs and the other 5% lie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's always ways to beat it. And that that like, and some guys take pride in that, you know. And that's a that to me as an athlete, it's like, why would you take pride in that? Yeah. You you, you, you you're taking pride in like, you know, I'm still like when I consider my athlete, it was like it was pure, you know. It was all about you know discipline and hard work, and you know now these guys are are ha- happy that they beat the test. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's kind of, it's a different, there's a different group of athletes, you
1: know. Yeah. And if it's not like cheating their bodies, they like, there's other ways they can enhance their performance. Like, you know, like for example, like people might tamper their bats or like people might tamper their equipment so they can play a little bit better. So it's like, if it's not them actually doing substances, they might be doing something on the field that's not, not cool, but it's just, it's just tough to know. (laughs)
2: The scary part is that's that's being handed down by the coaches. The mm-hmm. coaches are teaching them that. Yeah. All right. Hear a story. It's it's not the bad student, it's it's a bad teacher. Yeah. That's yeah. from a Jackie Chan movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so with that, I mean there's there's this incredible probably temptation, right? Um, you know, to to take something or to try to do that. And I know you want to be Perhaps um, part of a of like a major league baseball team or at a university, what strategies do you think organizations can employ to make sure that their, you know, their players, right, or athletes go take the right path?
1: Well, especially nowadays, I like with the increasing resources, definitely educating the higher ups, like the people that actually run these organizations on available resources for athletes is definitely gonna help them move it in the right direction um but then also for athletes to learn about the kind of environments that they're in and what certain people places or things might trigger them um to might do some of these negative coping strategies compared to others and helping them also realize um the people places and things that are consistent with what they want to achieve and trying to show them like if you spend more time in this box of things you know it'll keep you away from you know the temptation to use like substances or sheet or things like that, but also help you start achieving your goals more. So kind of reversing their bad habits and trying to add new habits that are much better for them to, um, to follow. But from the top, you know, just really educating the top people and like, hey, these are the resources available to them. Make sure they know they have full availability
2: for it. So are they like classes that are available that the team, let, let, let's just talk baseball, yeah. right? So yeah. Does a baseball team, I mean, you got your trainers, you, you got your, you know, all these other people working with you, right? But you never hear about the mental health. Is it like a group setting or or is it where someone can go and, and have a one-on-one uh, relationship for, for that?
1: Yeah, so a lot of things have changed. As far as Major League Baseball and college athletics goes where, um, they're hiring like one director who is like the main guy who kind of coordinates these resources. But then there's people under that director who might see players more intimately or hold groups or hold workshops that, they're, that are available to those players. Um, and so players can be seen in groups or players can be seen one-on-one. Players can be seen for mental health problems or they can be seen for strictly performance psych stuff. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of big shifts going on in these, these big organizations like I know the NBA um, and I think the NFL just required every single team to have a staff psychologist on so that players can see at least someone um, mm-hmm. rather than being um, referred out to the community. Because beforehand it used to be like this director of employee assistance program and players would go to them and they'd be, they'd be like referred out to the community for help. But now a lot of teams are having psychologists on board on the organization and even having an office like in the stadium so they can go to them um and they're trying to do a good job at making it very very open and um, transparent so there's less of a stigma of people going to get help too as well
2: I mean yeah that totally makes sense it makes the athlete comfortable yeah right I mean I remember when I when I first started going to therapy I was I was afraid like who would see me you know walk into the building and yeah. I get out of my car is, this, is someone gonna you know know and then what are they gonna th- say or think about me and I like. Screw it, you know. I'm, I'm just kind of gonna keep it keep it hidden for a while. Yeah. So, and yeah, No, that's yeah. really cool. A lot a lot of cool things happening, you know, in, in sports. I like. You know,
1: like I know I know in the MLB, um, actually for a summer I was like the bullpen catcher for the Stockton Ports, and they had they had this um, clinical sports psychologist on staff, and he would just go while they're taking batting practice go walk around the field and hang out with the players and stuff like that so they didn't hide anything at all it was just like out in the open like hey come hang out let's talk let's chat whether it was like an actual session or not I don't know but for the most part it seemed pretty transparent which I thought was really cool
2: (laughs) well I mean at first you got to earn the players trust right yeah we got to be able to trust you like this is um secretive, you know, I don't want anybody finding out that I'm a, I'm a nut, you know? <laughs> so I, I don't want, you know, anybody finding out that I'm using stuff that, you know,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> or it's bad for you, you know, I'll kill you. Yeah. And it's just not, not something, you know, you can't say that to family. You can't say that the to, to friends, you know, they don't get it.
1: You know, and, and as far as like the, the beauty of having like a psychologist on staff like that, it's they can ha- they do have the ability to like diagnose you and then actually get you resources or medications that you might actually need to help you um, mm. and get you kind of the approval from the organization so you can use it. So it's like, you know, there's nothing to hide. There's nothing behind anyone's back. You know, you have the documentation for it. And so now there's less people that have to kind of hide what they're using because they have kind of someone. Um, helping them
2: out that's like a professional gosh if, if there was something like that in bodybuilding and at my yeah. time at my peak i i would have i would have welcomed it yeah i would have like this is this is what i need right now and and maybe it just seem hey let's take a year or two off and focus on this and, and you know let your body heal and let your body and mind heal then come back better
1: yeah so yeah and another thing is like i you kind of mentioned that it's like oh i don't want anyone to know like i was like a "Quote unquote nut," but like my philosophy is like you don't even have to go to you don't even have to have a problem to go to therapy. Like one of the best parts about therapy, in my opinion, is like um, learning your patterns of why things are going well. And if you go to therapy and talk it out, you can kind of see why your success or why things are going well in your life. And so it becomes less of a coincidence in the future why you can continue to maintain that success. Um, and so kind of the philosophy of like optimization is like. Um, how can we take where you are and improve you rather than minimize what's making things hard for you, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Were were you experiencing this uh, therapy? Like when you backed away from uh, baseball, did you have any like things that bothered you that you needed to to talk to people about?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, I think my first experience in therapy was actually, was actually um, in college at, at university because I was away from home. I was going through Mm -hmm. like a really tough breakup at the time. And I was just feeling so many vulnerable and raw emotions, and it was affecting the way I was feeling on the field. And so, you know, I learned about the counseling center at FIU, and that was like one of my first experiences. I was like, wow, you know, it actually felt good to even talk about or get it off my chest. Yeah. Yeah. I started developing a bit more of an awareness and understanding of emotions. And um, that's one of the reasons why I kind of got sold on becoming
2: one myself. (laughs) Man, I tell you, had I been, I, I went to college in the late 80s, early 1991, right? And if, if there was, had there been a career, you know, knowing what I know now, had there been something, I, I was always wanted to be interested in psychology, yeah, you know, and, and sports psychology. And I probably would have got more into that. But, but the deterrent, <laughs> sad to say, my parents, you're going to make more money as an engineer. You're going to make more money as a doctor. And, but, uh, you know, they, they don't even hear you like, this is my passion. I'd love to help people with this. You ain't going to make no money. You <laughs> be a doctor, make more money. You know, that's- be an engineer, make more money. Be a nurse, make more money. You know, that, that was the bottom line. So like, I couldn't even like, yeah.
1: That's That's why I emphasized in the beginning. That's why I chose it in the second half of my college career. Because when I initially went to college, I was like a business major because my parents were like, you're going to go to college. You're going to get your MBA um, or you're going to become a lawyer. And I was just having such a tough time my first year. I was just like, screw it. I'm a major in psychology. I'm going to show them I can get into grad school and then I'm going to do my thing and they're going to be fine with it. And so that's why like, I made the, the rebel, rebellious decision to just kind of go against them and be like, all right, I'm just doing this. Screw it.
2: <laughs> cool. Cool, cool.
1: Yeah. And, you know, you you you, you kind of a light went on
0: in my head, Davey, with what you said is that we think of going to therapy um, as you have to have a problem. Something's got to be broken. You're trying to fix, but using it to optimize, maximize. Right. And, and I could see major league teams and colleges using it as a differentiator. Yep. Right. To get their athletes the edge over the competition, not because they have a problem, but how can they optimize themselves for maximum success right mentally and physically
1: yeah absolutely and I think a lot of te- that's why a lot of teams are kind of being grabbed by the hand really quickly to, to to figure this out because you know they're starting to see the teams with the you know performance psychologists and the clinical psychologists on staff and their success on the field and it's like kind of like not a coincidence <laughs> yeah yeah well, <laughs> it's a lot oh sorry <laughs>
2: I was, I was going to athletics, man. It's you know, I mean, John had asked the question what what percent he thought was mental, what percent is physical. I I, I would guess it would be eighty, you know, 70, 80 percent mental. Yeah. High up there, you know, I wouldn't give it fifty fifty.
1: No. You
2: know, That that mental toughness. You see the guys that are that are doing uh, that are succeeding, and and they're and they're mentally tough.
1: Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, good. Well, that was excellent. Davey. I'm um, Davi. Before we, we kind of wrap up Co, Do you have anything else um, on mental health? Uh... And while you're thinking about that, Co, I want to, we want to give your brother a shout out because he was a, yeah. a division one baseball player. Tell us a little bit about what, what he's pursuing here. Something
1: exciting, right? Yeah, if you're looking for another interview, I, I highly recommend hitting him up because his, his story and his narrative is, is much, is similar to mine just because we grew up in the same household. But he's had his own path and it's, it's been, it, it's inspiring for me to hear. Um, but um, yeah, now he's in his second or third year of medical school. Um, he he yeah. knew from, from high school going on. He's all like mom and dad. Really want a doctor in the family. So um, I'm going to go to med school after I'm done with college. And that's kind of what he's doing now. So Um, who's older? He is older. He's older. I'm I'm the youngest. I'm the youngest. (laughs) You got you.
0: Yeah. So we were, we were, I was thinking, hey, we should maybe invite him to him. But I'm like, if he's going through med school, this is probably the last thing he has time to do. <laughs>
1: yeah. He's, he's actually, he's actually um, taking
0: his boards this week. Yeah. And... That's where we're like, it's probably not the best time. Um, <laughs> yeah. But we would love to have him on one day when things settle down for him because, uh, yeah, he's, he's accomplished a lot and probably is, like you said, we'd love to hear his story as well.
1: I, I told him, I told him about, about your y'all's page and your podcast and everything like that. And he, he was so stoked. We were both so stoked because yeah. all we ever wanted, like growing up or even playing was like just representation. It's like, we knew in our hearts, like there's gotta be other kids or other people out there that look like us and that are playing and achieving things like us. And to kind of find that that community, even if I don't even directly talk to these people, it's just peace of mind knowing, Um, you know. So, as far as like, as like your 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 all's impact on 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 everything. I mean, look at here we are now having this chat about it. This wouldn't have happened if you guys didn't establish
2: this. Well, uh, thank you. Um, but let me ask you this: Who were your role models? Who did you guys look up to? Because you're saying it was mostly, you know, playing with white white kids, right? Yeah. yeah. Baseball, Florida. Uh, yeah. Who were you, or did you look more to the the Japanese athletes because that you know it's very big over there? Or who <laughs> did you guys look up to as far as athletes role models?
1: It's funny, like so. My brother's favorite player was Ichiro growing up, and my favorite oh. player growing up was Barry Bonds for some reason because I okay. loved it. I loved the hit. And I was like, who's the best hitter? Barry Bonds? All right. That's the guy that I'm going to try to, to be like. Um, But we, me and him both really admire watching each real play just because he was, he was such a prolific baseball player. And he also was Asian too. Um, But, and we didn't care what kind of Asian it was at that time. We were just looking for anyone. Yeah.
2: Just happy just like happy. That. they're Asian. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, And then we kind of rubbed off on a lot of our friends that we kind of met across um, playing like we play against different teams and we might see another Asian baseball player and we kind of get motivated by that to see them kind of killing it and we're like oh we're gonna we're gonna be just like them or things like that um, but there was also um, a period in time when we were playing that our cousins in, in Florida played baseball too so from like the ages of like nine to 14 um, you know we all played on the same club ball team and that was really cool too because it was like we are playing all these random teams and there's like four Laotian kids on it. And they're like, who are these guys? Um, and so it felt like we were putting, you know, our countries on the map in a way, so to speak. And some of my favorite moments in, in playing baseball were like playing with my cousins or playing against my cousins because he played at um, our rival high school. So our <laughs> families love those games. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, great, Davi. Well, hey, this was
0: a great conversation. Really excited to have you on. And, you know, we'd love to connect with you again in a couple of years when you you land that big job as as on a major league
1: team or what have you and hear about how yeah, it's going.
2: I hope this is just the tip of the iceberg you uh-huh. know, that we're touching on. So,
1: Most definitely. I mean, you all are doing something really, really special here, and uh, I can't wait to see it grow and develop. Because the only – oh, I meant to mention this. The only reason I found you guys' page – was because I have to do like an autobiographical statement um for my internship coming up and I was just trying to like think about myself like what what about me is is unique and I just searched Lao American athlete and the first oh. thing that came up was you guys's page and that's when I went <laughs> down the rabbit hole and looked through the page and I was like texting my brother like yo check this out this is so sick like there's people on here they the visual in sports just like us like look at them like and it was just, that was the rabbit hole.
0: <laughs> yeah, Nobody knew there was a pro football player, a rodeo cowboy, a professional <laughs> rodeo cowboy, right, Co. That's what yeah. everybody said. You got to be kidding me. Billy Soxota, yeah. great guy. But, you know, so like I said, I'm Italian. And that's how this got started because we had a lot of role models. Joe Montana, Dan Marino, right? Italian-American guys. And we have a Hall of Fame right here in Chicago where Co and I live and i told Co, i said hey we need something like this for the lao athletes a hall of fame we got this it makes us proud right we have people to look up to um and that's what why we started it you know is to really to help hopefully give them those role models and then connect everybody one yeah. of the best things is we've people that would have never met are meeting like athletes wow. and stuff that's right that cool. that have kind of connected through this so yeah so yeah I,
2: and and then, like, you know, it grew into a, a C4 because it's just like, man, why not have, let's, let's hear some of these guys' uh, stories, you know, what, what it, you know. like I like I think, like, I got an interesting story, you know, it was pretty, it, it had a lot of mental health issues. It had addiction, it had, you know, recovery, it's just, um, and I know a lot of people aren't comfortable talking about that. But to me, its I, I think it's an obligation as an athlete. If, if I want to help other athletes, you know, let them know that you could go down this road if you're not careful. But then also, too, if you do, there is a way out. You know, I, I never want, like, I don't know, like the younger Laotian kids like, like you, Davi, you guys are getting it. You know, like, but the ones that are around our age, you know, John and I's age, they've, like, they're just – they're kind of, I mean, there weren't t- too many athletes, but they're also kind of like resentful towards the younger kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember, I, I remember not only from our family, but from a lot of the ocean kids, I got a lot of resentment. You know, they wanted me to fail. You ain't never. you ain't never going to do it. You know, then, so I, I had all this negative energy and that was the problem is it was way too much negative energy. Yeah. And like it like, it, I don't know, combusted or something. So.
1: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, sometimes, I mean, growing up for me, it was like, I was too loud to be with the white kids or too much with the white kids to be Laotian. And it was always like this identity crisis growing up. <laughs> it, it's just like a lot, always so much <laughs> like pressure to withhold and things like that. But I love your attitude about wanting to see like the younger, the younger dudes like us uh, succeed. Yeah. Yeah. Because
2: yeah. you guys are the future, <laughs> man. You guys are, you know, that's awesome. And I, don't don't... Get, get, I, I want to buy jerseys. You know, I don't want to <laughs> buy just like uh whatever uh LeBron jersey or Jordan jerseys. I no, don't like a real like a real life you yeah. know, jersey that with a Lao name on it. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I don't because I know growing up, I don't know what it was like from the era you're in, but um, you know, there was a pretty good Laotian sized community in, in Pinellas County, Florida, or like just Florida in general, um, you know, but there was like these pockets of like gang activity too and like our, mm. par- our parents mm. biggest concern was that we'd fall into one of those those subgroups and it's like you know you love you love people who look like you and you'll interact with them regardless but you know you always feel the pressure of like oh you know which side am I going to lean on which side am I going to lean on because you feel safe in both you know yeah <laughs> yeah sure.
2: uh, I'm, well I'm glad you guys didn't go down that path I mean, <laughs> Yeah, that's just that's crazy I mean we got john knows more about uh, more knows more about gangs like because he's from northern california yeah <laughs> and all, the, all the crazy stuff stocking and all that yeah stuff. i mean i i we don't have much here like in chicago we don't have too many asian gangs but uh, yeah it seems like in you know, the west coast you know i guess went, they're uh, everywhere
0: and then in the 80s and 90s right it's died down but it was bad and early nights we've had a few guests on for those who haven't listened to all the episodes who talk about it in depth Um, but i think that culture is changing and you know so giving them another outlet sports things like that is really the the solution in a lot of cases so
1: yeah it really is and that's that's why i'm glad um like just even the 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 two words laosian and sports and athletes together like it gives someone 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 to like realize there's other ways to being (laughs) yeah
0: yeah awesome well great Dobby. appreciate you coming on thanks so much sounds good yeah let me know if you guys
1: want to chat again i mean i feel like we could talk for for hours
2: (laughs) yeah we we can can
1: have a
0: party the c4 podcast is brought to you by the lao american sports hall of fame visit us on the web at laoamericansports.com celebrating the first inspiring the next